You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So last week, we started a new sermon series in the book of 1 Timothy, and Pastor Joe kicked things off for us last week with an introduction to the book. And one of the things that you're going to notice uh, a little bit different about this series from here out is that uh, we've divided up 1 Timothy into smaller pieces which is going to allow our sermons to really slow down and, and dig into the text a little more, a little more different than how we did it with Genesis. If you remember, in Genesis, there were at times when we would preach whole chapters of the book, and, and just so you know, we're not, we're not doing that now. Part of that is because Genesis and 1 Timothy are different, right? Genesis is a big story, and 1 Timothy is a short letter, and so we're going to be looking at words, little words and how they fit together. And so you'll see what I mean. I just wanted to give you that heads up. Today we are looking at verses 3 to 7, just these verses here in chapter 1. And I want to tell you right away, the main point of these verses is the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. We see that word charge mentioned twice here in verses 3 and 5. And this charge that Paul gives to Timothy is in response to certain persons. That phrase is also mentioned twice here in verses 3 and 6. And so the main thing that we need to understand is what this charge is all about, but we can't understand the charge unless we understand the context of these certain persons. And so um, when it comes to uh, these two things, I think they actually both help us understand the other, and the plan for the sermon is really simple. This is one of those really neat uh, texts, I believe. There are two things we're going to do, just two parts. We're going to look first at who are these certain persons, and then we're going to look, number two, what is the charge, okay? Who are the certain persons, and then what is the charge? And I need to say that the charge here that Paul gives to Timothy is especially relevant to pastors. And that's because Paul is writing to a pastor. But there are at least three lessons in this passage that I think apply to all of us, all right? And that's the part that I am most eager to show you, okay? So I need you to hang in there with me for, for the one and two. And then after the one and two, we're going to get into three lessons that we learn in this passage that apply to all of us. And so if you like outlines, we got point one right here. We got point two right here. And then we have three points of application right here. Okay, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this moment when we get to open your word together. We get to, to be here with your word before us. And we recognize, as the psalmist tells us, that the unfolding of your word gives light. The unfolding of your word imparts understanding to the simple. And we confess, Father, that would be all of us. We would all be in darkness if not for your grace. So give us more grace now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so point one here is who are the certain persons mentioned here? See, you see that phrase, certain persons mentioned in verse 3 and then again in verse 6. And you see right away that these certain persons, they're the reason why Paul has Timothy in Ephesus. Look at verse 3. 
Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons. And so Paul, he starts the body of this letter by repeating something he's already said to Timothy at least once before. He says, hey, Timothy, just like I told you that other time, stay in Ephesus. And here's the reason why. Stay in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons. And the content of this charge gives us some insight into who these certain persons are. By what Timothy commands them not to do, we know a little bit about what they were doing. They were doing two things. The certain persons, number one, were teaching different doctrine. Look at verse 3 again. Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. And that phrase, different doctrine, is, is one that Paul uses again in chapter 6, verse 3. And when he uses the word there, he gives us a little more definition. He says there that this different doctrine does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that this is a serious problem. These certain persons are not giving another perspective within orthodoxy. Instead, they are teaching heresy. And there is a difference between those two. It's one thing to have various understandings of secondary issues under the umbrella of Christian orthodoxy. It's a completely different thing to oppose the sound words of Jesus, which is the apostles' teaching. And so this different doctrine here is false teaching that is leading people away from Jesus, which means that these certain persons are heretics. These certain persons are false teachers. And Paul pulls no punches when it comes to false teaching. In the book of Galatians, Paul says that if anyone preaches a gospel different from what he preaches, they should be condemned forever. That's Galatians 1.8. And then just a little bit later in this chapter, in 1 Timothy 1, in verse 20, Paul names, he calls out two of these certain persons by name, and he says that he has handed them over to Satan, which is pretty intense, right? These certain persons that Paul is talking about here, they are not just folks causing a little bit of trouble. They are teaching things that contradict the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing we need to know about them. Second thing we need to know, who are the certain persons? The certain persons were devoted to distraction. You can see this in verse four. This is the second part of the charge. Charge certain persons, verse four, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, we know verse 4 is connected to verse 3. The, the, the certain persons taught a different doctrine because they were devoted to myths and endless genealogies. Or, or maybe their different doctrine was their devotion to the myths, or, or, or maybe it's both. Either way, verse 4, it, it does explain a little bit for us what this heresy actually is. We should ask that. What, what exactly are these false teachers teaching? Well, we know it has something to do with myths and, and genealogies. 
But what I find really interesting about this passage is that Paul, he doesn't elaborate on the content of the heresy. Instead, he talks about the result of the heresy. And therefore, what Paul says here is not isolated to one kind of false teaching, but it actually goes for every kind of false teaching that has this same result. And here's the result. The result is promoting speculation rather than the stewardship from God by faith. That's verse four. Now, what does that mean? Well, whatever the speculation is, we know that it stands in opposition to the stewardship from God by faith. It is speculation. Paul says speculation rather than the stewardship from God. And the word stewardship here is really important. It it can also be translated order or, or plan. It's a word that Paul uses in his other letters and most notably is in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, which he wrote just a few years before he writes this to Timothy. This is how Paul says it there in Ephesians 3, verse 9. Paul says there that his, his apostolic mission, Paul's apostolic mission is to bring to light to everyone what is the plan. This is in Ephesians 3, 9, the plan, the stewardship. His mission is to bring to light to everyone what is the plan, the stewardship of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose of God that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the stewardship from God that Paul mentions here, this stewardship from God, this plan of God, it's God's plan of redemption that he has realized in Jesus and made visible in the church. Paul is talking about all of redemptive history that culminates in the church and is centered on Jesus Christ. That is God's design. That is God's plan. And it is a plan by faith, which means it's characterized by faith, not by works, not by ethnic privilege, not by family pedigree, not by social status. God's plan of redemption is by faith, which means right now, whoever you are, wherever you're from, Whatever your story is, because God's plan of redemption is by faith, you can get in on that, you see. You, we can all get in on this plan because it is by faith. God's salvation is not for those who are good enough. Nobody is good enough, but God's grace is great enough, and so have some. Have it, take it, believe it. That's God's plan of redemption by faith. And see, the problem is that the false teachers were promoting speculation, which contradicts that. Verse six calls this false teaching vain discussion, which means this this vain discussion was not helping people. These false teachers were not helping people. They were devoted to gobbledygook. It's the theological word for that, okay? 
Look, here's the thing. Gobbledygook does not save you. It does not help you ultimately. These false teachers, these certain persons in 1 Timothy 1, they were distracting people from the truth. They were diverting people's attention away from the very thing that gives them life. And it's into that context that Paul gives Timothy his mission. Paul tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, stay in Ephesus and shut them down. That's the charge. Certain persons. Now, what is the charge? The charge is pretty straightforward here. Timothy was to charge the certain persons not to teach any different doctrine and not to devote themselves to myths. And the word charge, it just means to order or to command. It, it means that Timothy is, to spoke, is supposed to speak into this church and give them a directive with authority. Paul doesn't tell him to stay there and have conversations. He doesn't say to hear them out. He doesn't say to set up a round table discussion to find out how they feel. That's not what he says. This is a shut down mission. And it's interesting to me when we think about that, because I think a lot of us, including myself, I think a lot of us have an image of a certain personality that we think would do this job really well. I think we probably imagine someone who is abrasive and harsh and cold and doesn't really care how people feel. Maybe someone who is just super intense. You know, that's the guy who's going to go in there and do this shutdown. We think, we think that, right? But the thing is, we know that Timothy did not have that personality at all. In fact, based upon the things that Paul says to Timothy, we get the idea, we learn from, from these letters to Timothy, that Timothy was, he was a young guy, and he had a weak stomach. And in fact, he was probably timid a lot of times, a little bashful. So then we should ask, what qualified Timothy to lead this shutdown mission? What qualified Timothy to go in there and to get rid of this false teaching? And we see it's because Timothy had embraced sound teaching. It's not that Timothy had a certain personality type. It's that Timothy was committed to the truth of the gospel and he lived in line with that truth. That's what the elder qualifications are all about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. There must be a commitment to sound doctrine. This is how Paul says it in Titus 1 verse 9. Paul says there that the, the elder, the pastor, must hold firm the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So elders must live in accordance with the gospel. They must be men of character and they must embrace sound doctrine so deeply that they can teach that sound doctrine and rebuke different doctrine. That is mainly what the office of elder is about. The office of elder is a teaching 
office, and that teaching office includes rebuking. Elders exist primarily for the church's doctrinal integrity. And we see this in First and Second Timothy. We see this also in the book of Titus. Both Timothy and Titus were, they were like pastor disciples under the apostle Paul. And it's really, it's really neat in these, in these letters because Paul gives both of them jobs, okay? Listen to what Paul tells Titus in Titus 1.5, okay? Paul says, this is why, he's talking to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Now remember, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Here, Paul is saying, this is Titus why I'm leaving you in Crete. This is why. So that you may put what remain into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the gospel has been preached in Crete and people have believed the gospel. And so churches are popping up and Paul told Titus to go and appoint elders. Now, why? It's for the sake of sound doctrine. There were already in Crete, already at the very start of these churches, there were already false teachers who were trying to slip in, which means that these churches needed guard dogs. They need elders who can teach and defend and live out sound doctrine. That's exactly what the book of Titus is all about. Elders are meant to be doctrinal guard dogs. Elders are meant to be doctrinal guard dogs, which, by the way, that is a very masculine task. That's part of the reason why Paul has to spell out gentleness as an elder qualification. At the character level, Elders must be gentle and not the kind of men looking for a fight because an important part of their work already involves correction and you can't do correction the right way if you're a hothead. So therefore, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, the Lord's servant, talking about elders, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. With gentleness. That is what you should expect from your pastors. That's what Paul is telling Timothy and Titus. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 1. Timothy was to charge the false teachers to cut it out. Stop. That was his charge, all right? Certain persons are these false teachers. The charge is to stop them. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Now what I wanna do for the rest of our time is just work through three, three lessons that I think we can learn in this passage. And these are three lessons that, that really do go for all of us. This applies to all of us, okay? So here's the first lesson. False teaching, number one, false teaching is still a problem today. Now, back in the, first, in the first century when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, sound doctrine was a matter of life and death for the church. If the church did not defend sound doctrine, they would have become watered down, assimilated, and eventually they would have been forgotten. 
And so when we read these letters here, there, there is a bit of a, a survival mindset that Paul has when he's writing these things today. It's a survival mindset that we don't really feel today. And that's why I think people can tend to downplay, Christians can tend to downplay the importance of doctrine. And I'm, I'm going to say this, I'm, I'm saying this very generically, okay? But for a lot of Christians... Doctrine is just not that big a deal. I remember back in college, I had this one professor who he used to always say, he used to always say, he's like, people choose churches for two reasons, good programs and good parking. We know that's why you're here, right? <laughs> we, we, I got to call him up, let him know. Uh, it is true, in, in general, it is true. That, that many Christians in North America, just doc, doctrine is not on the top of their list. Just look at the best-selling Christian books, right? Just take a look at that. You'll, you'll get it. Doctrine is not, it's, it's just not that important. But the problem with that is that false teaching is still a problem. False teaching destroys churches and it threatens souls. That's one thing that has not changed at all since the time that Paul wrote this letter. False teaching still exists today. It will continue to exist until Jesus comes back. And there are at least two reasons why that's the case. Both of these reasons are in the New Testament. The first reason is in 1 John 4. John says there that false teachers have gone out into the world, quote, in the spirit of Antichrist. False teachers are in the spirit of Antichrist. He means that the satanic attack on the church and in the world is already underway, and the tactic of that attack is deception. The enemy has always been a deceiver. That was his scheme back in Genesis 3. That is his scheme today. The enemy wants people, Satan, the spirit of Antichrist, wants people to understand, to believe untrue, whack things about God, just like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. That's the, that's, that's the scheme. That's the tactic. That's happening today. It's happening now, all throughout this city. All throughout our country is happening now. The spirit of Antichrist deceiving people. Another reason false teaching is going to continue is laid out in 2 Timothy 4.3. This is why false teaching will not pass it. It will always be around because of 2 Timothy 4.3. Paul says there, for the time is coming, which is here now, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Here's the deal. We get this, right? There are some things that people really like to hear. There is an appetite out there for no strings attached positivity and build your own destiny prosperity and political sub-Christian dominance and anything goes progressivism, right? There is no limit out there to the garbage that is said about God because these are things that people want to hear and people will always be able to find themselves a coward who will tell them the things they want to hear. 
So there's always going to be false teaching. There's always going to be false teachers. This is our world. False teaching is still a problem, and you, we should know that, okay? We should know that. False teaching is a problem. Secondly, this is uh, it's getting I think, more on the, the ground here where we live. Sound doctrine, number two, sound doctrine is for loving God and loving others. And this is verse five. If you read the text, I hope you're excited about verse, verse five. This is such an important verse. First Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, the charge that he mentions here in verse 5 is the same charge he mentions in verse 3. This is the charge that stops false teaching. This is a charge, that, the charge that rebukes. This is the charge that is a shut down mission. The aim of that charge, the aim of that charge is love. The aim of the charge to correct false teaching is love, which means in that sound doctrine is for love. Teaching sound doctrine and correcting with sound doctrine has the goal of love. So sound teaching has the goal of love. And when he says love here, he's talking about our love for God and then our love for others, right? When we say, when we talk about love, what does he mean? Love, God's love for us, what does he mean? Well, he, he doesn't mean here God's love for us, but our love for God and others. And of course, our love for God and our love for others is derived from God's love for us. We did a, a four sermons last August all about that. And because our love for God and others is derived from God's love, because our love is derived from God's love, that is why sound doctrine is so important. That's why Paul can say that sound doctrine, knowing the truth about God and his gospel, has the goal of you loving God and people. Knowing the truth about God and his gospel has the goal of you loving God and people. And just to be clear, you can't really love God or people any other way. First, you can't really love God unless you know him truly. And by that, I mean, we must know God as he has revealed himself in his word. A lot of times, if we're honest, we, we prefer the Instagrammable filtered versions of God, right? We, we, we don't care so much about sound doctrine. We just want pretty doctrine. We want the God who fits in with our culturally influenced preconceived notions. We want a God who never rubs us the wrong way. We want a God who is easy and we love that God. But it's not real love unless it's right knowledge. And this makes sense, of course. It cannot be real love for God if we are loving him for something he is not, right? That is why sound doctrine is so important. Really, you, you cannot love God and people any other way. When it comes to people, you, you can't really love people unless you point them to the true God. 
Only saying things that people want to hear ultimately will not help them. And that's the problem with these false teachers. They are saying things people want to hear. And I'm sure when they said it, they were super authentic and raw and welcoming and all of that as they led people to hell. We only truly love people by giving them more of God, which is why we must know God truly. That's what sound doctrine is for. The goal of sound doctrine is love. And here's the last thing. Number three, the source of love is a deep place with a high standard. We learned this last part in verse five. The goal of the charge is love, we see. But wait, it's even more than that. Look at verse five. Paul says it's love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, which means it has to be love from the right source. Love has to be coming from the right place. And this is a deep place with a high standard. Listen to this, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And if we get it wrong here, we get it wrong everywhere. That was actually the first problem of these false teachers. Look at verse six. Paul says that certain persons by swerving from these. Now, when he says these, he's talking about verse five. He's talking about a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. So by swerving from this, this right source, they wander into all this false teaching. This tells us that false teaching is not first a data problem, it's a source problem. It's not so much corrupt sayings, but it's the corrupt souls from which the corrupt sayings are said. False teaching is not mainly an information mistake, it's a motivation sabotage. See, to put it negatively, these are the false teachers. The false teachers had a sinister heart. They had a seared conscience. They had a deceitful faith. They were not just wrong out here. They were not just wrong in what they said. They were wrong right here. They were wrong at the level of their hearts, at the level of source, which is why the source of our love, which is the goal of our charge, matters. Did you track with that? The goal of sound doctrine is love, and the source of that love must be holiness. That's why Paul tells Timothy over and over again, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching in 4.16. Keep yourself pure, 5.22. Pursue righteousness, 6.11. God cares about the source. The source of love matters. That's true for pastors and that's true for everyone. 
There's no doubt that this passage is relevant for pastors. It's written for a pastor. But the importance of source applies to every single person sitting in this room. Your love for God and your love for people must come. Listen, your love for God and your love for people must come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I expect... That feels heavy. It's heavy enough for us to know that we're supposed to love God and love others. And most of us, I think, would say we're not doing a great job just at that. And now to have Paul tell us that not only do we have to love people, but we have to love people from the right source. And that source, that love is from a deep place with a high standard. So it's like we, we have this is heavy. Where, where's the good news here, Paul? This is heavy. Where's the good news? And there is good news. Paul says that love must be from a pure heart. That means a heart that has been cleansed. Love must be from a good conscience. That means a happy conscience directed by the word of God. Love must be from a sincere faith, which means a faith that is fruitful and evidenced in real life. And then when we put all of this together, we realize, oh, of course, I can't do that. That's not up to me. This is the work of God. This depends on the grace of God. This depends on the power of God. Love from a source like that requires a miracle. And God works the miracle. The only reason, the only reason we can love from a deep place with a high standard is because God has loved us from the deepest place with the highest standard. That is the cross of Jesus. When Paul says in other places, like in Galatians 6, he says that his only boast is the cross. I think this is what he has in mind. Who are we? I mean, who are we that we are loved and that we give love? Right? Who are we? And then Jesus came. Jesus came and lived perfectly in our place. Jesus was pure and good and sincere. He endured in faithfulness and he loved us to the absolute uttermost. That is the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, he went there to suffer in our place. He absorbed the punishment we deserve for our sins. He washed away our dirt. He removed the shame that covered us. When Jesus died for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, when Jesus died for you, God showed his love for you. And by that love, he conquered sin and death for you. That is the love of God. That is the love of God. Love from the deepest place with the highest standard. And that is the only way, the only way we can love God and love others. And that's what this table 
is all about. We come to this table each week to remember the death of Jesus on the cross, which means that we remember here at this table, we remember the love of God. If you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to this table. We invite you to take this bread and to take this cup. And as you do today, as you take today, as you take the bread and as you take the cup, I, I want you, I want us to rest in the love of God. The love of God that we are called to out there goes back to, is derived from the love of God that is poured into our hearts through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And so as we take the bread and as we take the cup, we give thanks to him in his power. And so we're going to serve the bread first. The pastors can come. It's gluten-free. Just hold on to it. Then I'll come back up and we will eat it all together. Uh, his body is the true bread. Let us serve you.